Trust in financial services has been increasing. But with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Pension B's IPO and listing on the London Stock Exchange, Current triples its valuation with its Series D round and a new investor, and Go Cardless breaks into open banking with new instant pay initiative. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 524 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky and I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, this is absolutely no good at all for our listeners, but I'm very excited. I've, I've sort of sat myself in a new spot for recording this, and I think this is the most tanned I've ever looked on a on a camera. <laughs> so I'm like a inordinately pale person in, in real life, but I actually look quite tanned. So I think I might stay in this spot forever now. This is my new my new spot. You mean you've got excellent lighting? I'm just sat in front of a window, so it's not even professional. <laughs> it's just, just natural daylight. But yeah, clearly I don't see enough of it. If it works, stick with it, that's what I say. Um, of course, we are not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests. So making a welcome return, we have Jasper Martins, CMO at Pension B. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Sarah. Great to be back on the show. And of course, you've had a great week, but we will talk about that slightly later on. Possibly. Uh, <laughs> Possibly, maybe. It's in my notes, Jasper. I've got to talk about it. <laughs> um, making their FinTech Insider News debuts, we also have Andy Wigan, VP of Product Management at Go Cardless. Welcome to FinTech Insider, Andy. How are you doing? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And a big week for you as well. Honestly, there's, there's so much news this week. We've managed to capture guests from all the top stories. It's very exciting. Uh, not capture, that's the wrong word, Sarah, but you know. <laughs> Honestly, I promise you, they're in their own homes and they're free. Um, and last but not least, we have joining us from the US, Stuart Sop, CEO and founder at Current. Thank you for joining us, Stuart. Uh, how early is it? Um, it's not that early. Thanks for having me. It's midday, so um, okay. lunchtime. All right. Was, yeah. That's more reasonable than we have been, um, some <laughs> guests. <laughs> All right, let's jump straight in. Uh, so first up, we're going to talk about that Pension B IPO. Uh, so Pension B began unconditional trading on Monday, at which time it was admitted to the high growth segment of the London Stock Exchange. Its shares were priced at 165 pence, which gave Pension B a valuation of £365 million on admission, and shares were holding stable at that mark. Uh, shares were around 180 pence at the time of recording. Um, Pension B is listed under the, oh God, PB ticker. Um, yeah. Jasper's nodding at me, um, and is subject to conditional trading for the remainder of this week, limiting retail investors from getting involved. The IPO was, however, open to existing customers via an integration with primary bid. Being a publicly traded company will enable us to further develop our customer-focused proposition and to extend our reach to millions of consumers across the UK, whilst continuing to use our voice to make positive changes in the pension industry, added CEO Romy Savova. All right, Jasper, I think I might come to you first on this. First of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> How does it feel to be publicly listed? 
I feel very grown up, Sarah, um, <laughs> being a listed company. Um, but in all fairness, uh, it's been quite a journey for uh, lots of us at Pension B to get to this particular point. And now actually being listed and seeing your share price now on a daily basis is, um, well, it's actually not very um, uh, nerve wracking, to be honest. Um, but it's also a relief because of the, the way it's uh, been done. And also it sets us now to move forward, uh, can actually, you know, pick up some really great new marketing campaigns, part of my job. <laughs> so are you happy with the response so far then? I mean, you, you were one of the, the, the first UK, well, arguably one of the first UK fintechs to actually get to this stage. So how does that feel? Uh, it, it, great. Uh, and I'm, honestly, I think it's also the share price was holding steady um, and the response from the market has been very positive. Um, and of course, our customers have participated in the IPO. Uh, so I feel you've got to really also have responsibilities to make sure that however you're going to market, it needs to be done properly. And of course, it's early days and we're just a couple of days now in uh, of full trading, but it all looks like the share price holding steady. And um, yeah, and we're taking a lot of our customers on this journey. Now, I do actually think that the climate here in the UK, especially here in London, has been really good for us. And I think more of us will follow. Um, and yeah, Sarah, we did look at Deliveroo IPO. Yes, we did. And yes, we did saw the price drop, but you know, it's all about pricing your company right. And I think that's what Pension B has done. Yeah, just because one comp one thing one happens to one company doesn't mean it's going to happen to another. I mean, that's, that's not kind of necessarily how it works. Yeah. Um, Andy, you were nodding along there when, when Jasper was talking about the climate being right for, for kind of more of this in, in the UK right now. Is that something that you, you see as well? Is that something you think we're going to see perhaps a few more UK fintechs coming to this stage? I imagine so, yeah. I mean... I think last year the the UK was was the, was top when it came to um, to investment in in Europe. There was you know it was four billion or something like that in in, in the UK alone. So, you know, I'm I, I guess I'm sort of just proud to be proud to be a part of it. Really, um, I spent a lot of my career over overseas and in, in Stockholm uh, outside of the UK, and, and sort of coming back and then sort of feeling feeling part of the scene here has been 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 a bit of, bit of a journey for me. So I can sort of empathise with with where you guys are. I was going I was going to ask actually. How many times you'd kind of clicked refresh on the on the stock <laughs> price ticker this week? Um, no comment, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, I yes, I did click a couple of times refresh, but shall I tell you that I've only checked once this today, this morning. Um, I might check after the show, but no, it's 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 what I find really interesting is that we know some others will follow down the line. It's expected. Uh, we're also getting out of lockdown. The economy is bound for a rebound. Um, I just feel like the climate is there, that um, uh, there's a lot of positivity in the air. Companies that have a really good business model and are uh, can showcase to investors um, um, that they that their business is, is, is sustainable, is stable, and is um, just needs, for example, funding for growth. Great. I think that's a perfect climate for those businesses. Uh, we're just the first one. Others will follow. 
I mean, Stuart, it'd be interesting to take your perspective on this, um, sort of about the general climate for IPO, because obviously in the US, this kind of um, activity is is more common, uh, just generally speaking. I mean, what, what are you what are you seeing over there? Do you think that you know you're seeing similar things? You're seeing more and more fintechs getting to this stage and deciding to take this route. I mean, on this podcast, we've talked quite a lot about SPACs in the last few weeks, or at least I seem to have. I don't know if anybody else has. Um, but you know, what 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 do you think the market's looking like in in the states? Is it is it equally buoyant? Yeah. Um, definitely buoyant here for fundraising um, as well as uh, with the SPAC market, which has recently cooled off. I'd say um, I was getting a call once a week um, from some uh, you know SPAC uh, random random people, some some random, some well known, um, and sort of showed. I think there was more money raised in in the first month of this year than there was entire in the entirety of 2020 in SPACs. So so it was going bananas. Um, and of course, I think um, there's some negative selection bias in it, and I, and that's why we've stayed away from it. It's because um, we're also we're just not ready to, to IPO. You have to you know have audited accounts and do all this other stuff. You have to prepare for it. I'm sure Jasper is well aware of what that entails, and it's a massive drag on your focus. You need to hire a lot of people to do that and all the rest of it. Um, so so SPACs is sort of a, like a you know a sort of a shortcut in some ways, and I think. A lot of companies and fintechs that potentially couldn't get funding or were never going to be able to direct list that would normally have had an M&A um, went the SPAC route. And so um, we've seen that happen. And of course, now the funding's kind of not dried up, but they've just stopped creating the SPACs because there there's too much money f- trying to ha- follow too few assets, too few companies. Um, and so... You know, I think eventually SPACs, I think over the next two years, if you take a longer term time frame, I think the SPAC market will be actually a good um, a good vehicle for people starting maybe this year. So if you start a company, a fintech this year today, and you go, look, my idea is only a billion dollar idea or half a billion dollar idea. Not everyone has a multi-billion dollar idea uh, in terms of business model, strategy, cash flow, all that other stuff. And so, you know... Founders may get together today and go, look, we'll do this for two or three years. And I think I can get it to a billion dollars and, and, and use the SPAC route. And, that, and I think that's awesome. I think that's going to increase the pace of innovation. I think it's going to um, uh, provide far more interesting exits and a recycling of talent and, and, and all the rest of it. So that's pretty cool. Um, in terms of traditional direct listing, we obviously had Coinbase go live, you know, $100 billion or whatever it was, and now they're down to, I think, like the 60s or 70s. And my view, look, I, I know nothing that anyone else doesn't know sort of thing, but um, but uh, but clearly that was a very special case in the sense of, you know, I think they're going to have major competitive forces and an erosion of, of, their, um, of their competitive edge of on-ramping into crypto. Um, so I think what you're seeing is people or companies that um, – need to get to market quickly for whatever esoteric reason they're doing it now. And then if you don't have to, you're sort of waiting and watching. It's a a great market for the private markets, right, as well as the public markets. So why do you need to go to public unless, you know, it's towards the end of your journey or, you know, everyone needs a change or whatever it is? 
Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see, particularly when um, or if SPACs start to come over to Europe, because it's certainly something that we've heard a lot of buzz about here in the UK, the government trying to work out, you know, how do we get how do we get some of this action? We'd like some of that on the on the London Stock Exchange. Um, Kate, you know, you see a lot of, you know, this activity as well. And and you see a lot of, you know, fintechs. I mean, I'm not going to put you on the spot and say, who do you think is going to go next? But do you, you know, do you have any ideas about the sort of companies that we might expect to see follow Pension B? Um, I think, you know, the obvious example that's been talked about a lot is, you know, Wise slash TransferWise. You know, I think they've kind of said that they're kind of ramping up towards this and, and moving towards this. So that seems to be kind of like the the obvious next UK fintech to kind of keep keep your eyes peeled on. Um, for me, this is just a, such a great success story for for so many reasons. Obviously, you know, for the UK as a, as a, as a whole, for the fintech space, as, as Andy's mentioned, but I suppose selfishly, I just think I find it so exciting to see another kind of female-led, female-founded business having this kind of success. Obviously, we had uh, the the kind of uh, move from from Bumble in the dating app space, obviously totally different sector, but you know, huge positive news coverage of Whitney Wolf Heard taking them public in the US earlier on this year. And, and now, obviously, you know, great to see Pension be having success as a business, but also, you know, Romy having success as a female founder. So, yeah, lots of reasons to celebrate. So, congratulations. I think that's a really great photo of Romy um, on the balcony of the London Stock Exchange that was actually published when um, we actually started trading. For me, that was a very powerful photo, Kate, for exactly the reasons you just mentioned. Great as a fintech now coming to fruition, but also uh, a female founder that's been successful and we can use more of those. I completely agree. Um, and I think, you know, the, the more diversity we have in leadership, the better for, for the whole industry, actually. And that's diversity of all of all kinds and all types. Um, just one thing I did want to sort of finally touch on with you, Jasper, is this idea of having your customers involved. So getting your customers, you know, the, the, the customers that are existing customers of Pension B being offered the chance to, to join in with the OPI. Uh, OPI? No, that's a nail varnish company. IPO. <laughs> um, how, how important was that to you and to Romy and to the company as a whole? Uh, I think it was uh, a must. So, and I know it's actually quite unusual for uh, companies to involve their customers in in such in such a big way. Um, we believe we want to make pensions simple, and we want to build a product for everybody so they can look forward to a happy retirement. We ask our customers what that also looks like, what kind of product that should be. We are taking our customers on a journey. This is quite a pivotal moment in our business. Would you then exclude your customers completely and just go to Mr. and Mr. Mrs. Institutional Investor? And then after, as an afterthought, you add your customers. So we just really didn't want to do that and involve our customers from the start. Um, and over 12,000 customers have actually participated uh, which has been brilliant. Um, and uh, that also means that we now also got lots of shareholders uh, <laughs> who are customers, and that's great. So in terms of when people say going public is kind of at your last end of your journey, I actually disagree with that. Um, the high growth segment of the London Stock Exchange is designed for companies like us at this part of the journey. Yes, you have to be transparent. You have to show your accounts. You have to go through the diligence process. I'm not going to say that is easy, um, but it's actually not as difficult than I think than what certain, certain founders or certain companies sometimes think it is or how expensive it is. The benefits of being public is we are now able to grow faster. Um, 
and we are taking lots of our customers now on board with this in with this with with going public so i think it's just a double whammy in that perspective yeah, I, I think it's. I, I really like the idea, and I hope it's something that if we do see this, you know, next wave and more companies uh, coming through, you know, into the IPO route, I do, I do like it, and I do hope that more companies take that idea on board as well, because you know, as you say, it's a win-win situation. Your customers get, you know, in there early and feel like they're being supported, and then you have lovely, lots of lovely shareholders, right, right, and ready to go. So um, hopefully, that's a trend. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on to our next story now, um, and that is that Current has raised $220 million in a Series D and tripled its valuation to $2.2 billion. Uh, so Current is a US-based challenger bank, which has now grown to nearly 3 million users. Um, it announced the Series D funding, which has been led by new investor Andresen Harowitz, I never know if I'm pronouncing that right, A16Z. Um, as a result of the new round, it has roughly tripled its valuation in five months. Uh, Current's mission is to enable members to change their lives through improving financial outcomes. Um, this same week, Jimmy Donaldson, aka Mr. Beast, one of YouTube's most viewed creators and philanthropists, also announced an exclusive long-term partnership and investment in Current. Uh, the collaboration will give him a new platform to engage and give back at an even larger scale to his over 130 million social media fans utilizing Current's mobile banking products. Um, Stuart, again, I think it makes uh, obvious sense to come to you first on this one, perhaps. Congratulations. Um, so what does what does the new funding mean for current? You know, what are you what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh it's a lot of money. Um so and it's hot off the heels of our series C's. Um so so it came about we weren't um, particularly looking to raise money, but Andreessen, uh, and and they have a fantastic team there. I've known them for many years. Um, and so we've gone to know each other over like th- maybe four or five years actually. And so, you know, there was trust there. There was, there was a longstanding relationship and for their thesis and, and, and for the, the dynamic and framework of where fintech is in the market, they felt the, it was the time was right to, to make a bet in a challenger bank here in the U.S. And, and so, and so that was very exciting to be able to partner and work with them. They're joining the board and, and all the rest of it. Um, their reputation as a team and, and, uh, and investment success precedes them. So, you know, we, we don't really need to get into that. But in terms of money and what it's for, it's, it, it's clearly to uh, um, extend and, and increase um, the acceleration of our growth. Um, the, the addressable market in America for consumer banking uh, is massive. It's truly massive. So we have 4,700 banks. We have 5,000 credit unions. It, it, it's truly gigantic. I mean, I'm English. I came from England. We have like <laughs> ten. We had, I grew up. There was five <laughs> banks. You know, when when HSBC bought Midlands, and it was a big deal back in the day, right? And then, um, you know, you have the choice of whatever it is down the high street in America. It, it, you know, the U.S. is truly staggering, um, and of course, um, a lot of those banks are unable to compete with the technological change that's happening. Right. So they barely made it through the internet, you know, having a web page, let alone a mobile first and, and eventually will be an AR and all the rest of it over the next 10 years. And so, um, and to attract the right talent, um, the engineers, the product managers, the designers uh, and marketing and all the rest of it is so technical. Every job, even the CEO, like even my job is probably far more technical than any other CEO jobs, you know, in, traditionally, uh, in the past. So, um, Everyone, you know, all this money is going into hiring. It's going into hiring, you know, very technical people to build build the company so that it can build products and deliver value. 
Um, and then into marketing and growth and making sure that we're relevant and building relevant products and, and delivering as much value back uh, to our customers. So um, that's where all the money is going. I mean, obviously we have a lot, <laughs> so we, we can we can we 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 can take some risk on our product set and we can take some risk on on how we acquire people now. Um, and and with that comes responsibility and like you know. Um, there's a whole lot of responsibility and pressure to 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 grow into that. So it's not lost on on myself or the company and anyone in the in the company that we um, we're out here to deliver now. So it's exciting times. If you think you've got too much, I'm very happy to help you out. <laughs> just, just send some my way. So yeah, the uh, of course. Any, uh, we'll all, of we'll course, all have anytime. some. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, please, please, please. <laughs> um, with with what you were just saying there about you know reaching new customers and 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 you know going after a sort of new audience and things, um, just wondered if you could touch a little bit on this partnership with creators such as Mr. Beast. Do I have to say I had to look up because I'm old? Um, and what what that what that brings to the brand and how that kind of um, what advantage that gives you perhaps or, or what different you know how it makes you uh, differentiates you from from you know alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. So we're very excited about our partnership. Um, with um, Jimmy, Jimmy Donaldson, Mr. Beast, also known as. Um, he's from North Carolina. It's good. It's it's probably appropriate that almost anyone listening to this podcast probably doesn't know who he is. Um, anyway, the typical age of someone who does would be around 21 years old. Right? So that gives you an idea. Um, and what we're seeing is a clear demarcation from and, and, a, and a change of habits from a millennial or early stage millennial to Gen Z. This is a clearly a Gen Z phenomenon, which is YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, consuming video over, um, over, over, over Google search or, or anything like that. So, so everyone is solving problems. They're being influenced. Um, they, they are consuming, um, data and a bunch of other things in, in this video format. And I think it's really, really important to get ahead of that. Um, we as a, as a company and as a strategy focus on um, a younger demographic than anyone else in the country. So our nearest competitors would be um, sort of Chime and, and, and Square Cash and, and maybe even Viro. And their typical average age of their feature set is about 38 to 40. And we're about 27 years old on ours. And so it goes all the way down to about 18. We have a team banking product that, that, that goes even younger. Um, and so, and so that's on, that's on purpose because what we want to do is get people at the beginning of their financial journey, onboard them into the financial system and then have a very long LTV so that as we build and all this value and all this, all these products that we will age gracefully with our customers as they, as they, as they, as they get more, um, more demand for more complicated and complex financial transactions like mortgages and all this other stuff. And we'll be there for them when they're there. So, so that's really the strategy. When it comes to Mr. Beast himself, he's a um, master marketer, businessman, understands the, the American consumer probably better than anyone else and also gives back. He gives back so much money, um, almost all the money he's made, almost all. A lot of it. I mean, I'm sure he'll, he'll have stats. Goes back into his channel. Goes back into his followers. Like he, he basically gives away money as his as his shtick, right? So, um, and so that you know, America is bifurcated in in people who have money and who don't. And he has focused on that demographic as much as we are. We're trying to onboard them into the financial system so we improve their financial outcomes. He's out there giving people money when they need it the most, and so. The brand alignment, the trust alignment, what we're trying to do in our missions are very, very close together, which is really exciting for all of us. Stuart, question. I'm 42, yep. but I have actually done some research last night. I did check out Mr. Beast. 
Um, so I was on his YouTube channel. Fascinating. Uh, and congratulations. Uh, I saw his videos rake up millions of views. Now, my question is, and you, you need to tell me if I'm Mr. Sauerkraut here or not, but this guy is not a financial expert at all. So you are actually recommending a financial product. He is going to recommend a financial product. Now, if I would do the same in the UK, I, would be in, I might be in serious trouble. Right, so there's 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 regulations around that. How do you how is how does that work in the states? And uh, is that how do you kind of like work it in a way that you that you actually sleep very well um, and you don't feel any uh, guilt? Yeah. Um, so so a couple of things. One is obviously the US isn't the UK, um, and, and so there is very different regulatory. Um, standards and oversight on financial products. If you've done your homework and research, you'll see that there are disclaimers, uh, notices, paid promotion banners. Um, there was like a bit of a, there was a bit of a watershed moment a few years ago when you started seeing influencers, and I won't name the names for fear of getting into trouble, but not the ones we would typically sponsor, were like promoting products without giving disclaimers and notices and disclosures. They weren't necessarily financial, but some were. Um, and of course, Instagram had to change all that, all that, all that stuff. And so we're under the purview and, and, and oversight of our issuing banks, the regulators of which all our marketing and adverts are, which go through those channels. So, uh, in terms of like being, uh, squared away, we're all good. Um, in terms of him and him being a financial expert, that's not the point of it. He's not trying to be a financial. In fact, he's, you know, none of the creators or influencers we work with, in, in fact, we don't go to financial experts. We actually go to people who are lifestyle bloggers. We're not trying to say, they're not saying this is the best, you know, uh, you're going to have, um, you know, the, the, um, you know, an investment or, or something. As soon as you come under the SEC rules and you're doing investing and trading, all of a sudden, totally different purview as well. And so in terms of banking products, pretty safe. Um, and so we sleep very well at night knowing Good. that, um, that, that Jimmy Donaldson, uh, will will promote our product because he uses it and believes in it. No, I think congratulations. I, I I generally enjoyed what I saw on his channel last night. Yeah, I was just going to say the EU and the UK, um, far more socialist, paternal type countries. Um, we have a federal system here, uh, and so you know it's much quicker to get up and running uh, in, in, as a fintech uh, in the UK and, and Europe. Or it used to be even quicker before Brexit, obviously, because you just go to one. But um, but um, and, and, and so that comes with advantages and disadvantages. You homogenize and you level the playing field. So there's really no differentiation in the UK and Europe, in my view, for, for, for many fintechs and banks. Um, and and in, the U, in the US, the fact that it is a federal system and it's a feature, not a bug, and, the, and, and, and you have all this sort of dislocation, this opportunity that you can play between. And so, and so that's why I think fintechs are able to grow so quickly here. It's because there is opportunity still. I was just going to um, I was just going to ask Andy a question about um, you were sort of I couldn't tell if you were looking bemused, but um, about the <laughs> the idea of using using influencers and and is it something that you know you, you think we perhaps might see more of in the UK? I mean, obviously, GoCardless is a very different sort of company. I'm, I'm not sure that that you know influencers is necessarily something that would fit or you would choose to do. But as a general market, obviously, you have you must have your eye on that. Do you, do you think it's something we're going to see an increase in? Yeah, I mean, obviously for GoCardless, we're we're very much a B two B company, so the use of influencers is 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 obviously quite different, you know, in terms of where they're where they're actually 
putting their message across in the channels. It's a B2C thing. Um, I think in the, you know, the, the UK is probably a little bit behind when it comes to sort of, um, the, the use and adoption of, of kind of influencers as a, as a, as a marketing channel. Maybe, you know, that's a cultural thing. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand it. You know, I'm, I'm 38. Um, I say I don't understand it. I, I don't relate to it, but it certainly seems to be, um, to be, to be on the rise. And, you know, just hearing Stuart talk about it, it, it sounds, it sounds incredibly impressive how you've kind of aligned, you know, the, the market and audience you're going after with, with somebody who, Sounds sounds like you know not only is a, is obviously a very influential person has got a lot of followers, but it's also kind of got you know got got similar kind of values and things to, to what you're trying to create as a business. So I'm also you know I had more of a question than than, than a commentary really, which was um, you know I read about the crypto piece and um, was kind of interested just to understand more generally like how how crypto is sort of perceived in in the us especially by the the younger audience that, that you're going after like you know and, and what what's the play there yeah that's a really good question it's it's perceived in high regard i should say i think you know um we did a, a survey of all our all our users we don't have crypto yet but we will do very soon or at least the on-ramp part um and 40 over 40 percent of all our users um had uh traded or or at least bought Bitcoin in the last six months. So forty percent. So as a feature um, engagement tool, you don't want. They're clearly doing it. One of our competitors, right? And so for us, it's it's one of defensibility. It's one of like, okay, we need this feature because our our membership base demands it. Um, in terms of like how crypto is generally perceived, um, I think it comes in tandem with how. The existing financial system has not floated all boats for the last 40 years, especially here in America, and that we have wealth inequality and wealth bifurcation. Rich get richer. We, we inflate assets. And if you don't have any money and you don't have assets, you've had to fund your life with debt. Um, and it's cheap debt, so it's easy to, to sell. And so this, this, this economic lack of mobility um, has come hand in hand with um, a re-networking of the financial system through, at least in the early days, through crypto. And so a lot of people, because the barriers to entry are so low, and they're in at the sort of ground floor, as you're seeing these institutions pile in, um, you know, like Tesla or whatever it is, Michael Saylor, um, um, have come in at like sort of record numbers at, 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 and record valuations of Bitcoin. It's it's basically made a massive wealth effect and, and, and it's perceived as a leveling playing field, a leveling of the playing field of what is a, a deeply unfair system. So um, access to crypto is basically saying, I'm giving you access to opportunity to, to right the wrongs. Whether that's right or not, we will <laughs> remain to be seen. Like a lot of these things are crazy, like Dogecoin, all this other stuff. Why, you know, on one hand, it's like, why not? But the other hand, there's no cash flow. There's infinite supply. There's all these crazy things. So uh, we'll get through this stage. It, it, it's an awkward adolescence crypto stage. But what's happening is real. And if people are expecting it to mean revert, that is the wrong framework to see crypto in. It, it is a one-way street in my view. Kate, did you want to have the final word on this one? Oh, maybe not. I wanted to ask Stuart another question. I didn't don't I don't want to come and interrogate Stuart's session, but I suppose I was really interested. You know, we've talked about we've talked about uh, crypto, but the other part, you know, I was really interested to read about around the launch was you know some chat around you know, credit cards kind of coming into your roadmap or things that you're going to look at going forward. So, you know, obviously, we know that credit cards are huge in the US, are just a part of life, but are also, as you've sort of talked about, you know, a huge part of that 
problematic financial life for Americans. So I'd, I'd love to kind of get a sense, you know, not the detail necessarily, but a sense of what the current vision for credit cards is. Like, how do you propose to kind of roll that product out and stay true to your your purpose and your mission statement? Yeah, the 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 worst thing in the world would be for us to come out with a 36% APR, APY credit card. That would be the worst product ever, right? And so um, whatever that exists right now, and they do exist here, and the reason why they say 36% is because the military have a specific law that states that you're not allowed to charge more than 36% interest to a uh, a soldier, a military professional. And so you can see the state of lending in America. It's <laughs> just straight up to the up to the maximum that they can do. And also the state of pay, right? So we have government workers, military, and all this rest of it, who are deeply in debt, um, which, which I don't think is healthy for, for anyone. Um, can we change the income stream? No, but we can provide access to opportunities and things like that. That will come later. In terms of credit cards, the majority of our membership base have a, we have a FICO score system here. If you're not aware of this credit score, um, which is, is really opaque. There's a bunch of bells and whistles on it. And it's really, you're really quite unsure about which attributes and which behaviors affect positive change, right? So it's a black box. You can't get into it. Um, and so a large, a large part of our membership base are under 600, 650 FICO, meaning that they're just dropping off. They're actually not part of this this credit system where people report their behavior and all this other stuff. And so to give a traditional credit card in a traditional FICO framework would be terrible for most of our members. So that's just, I'm, I'm showing you the sort of North Star that a traditional credit card just won't work and it hasn't worked for, for our members. Um, and so, you know, without giving too much away, because it's a competitive market space out there. And that's why we're not public, right? Because, you know, we'd have to share everything or most things. Um, is, um, you know, asset-backed credit is clearly, is clearly the future uh, uh, for us. And then reporting appropriate credit uh, to whichever bureau to build that credit score to get them into the traditional system. Now, there is a world in which if we build an amazing um, ecology, an amazing sort of closed loop system that you may never need to leave current, right? So so that's also the dream of a bunch of uh, the fintechs here in the US is that once you have a bunch of these verticals, then you kind of own the life button, not just the the money button. Like we can solve all life problems. And, and that's a big ambition for, for us and many others. All right. Well, that is a huge ambition. But at this point, I'm just going to leave it there. And we're going to take a quick break, but we will be back very shortly. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve and Soldo and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. All right, welcome back. So our next story today is that GoCardless has launched open banking payments. So uh, the company has launched one-off bank-to-bank payments for its customers. Uh, for GoCardless's 60,000 merchant customers who use its direct debit service, the new feature offers an alternative for handling single non-recurring payments. Uh, the, the feature, called Instant Bank Pay, leverages a combination of the GoCardless global bank debit network and open banking technology. 
It provides merchants with a low-cost, seamless and convenient way to collect instant payments from new and existing customers through a single platform. Uh, Challenger broadband provider Cuckoo, I wish they served my area, I really, really do, um, is the first customer to roll out the service after a period of early access to the tech. Cuckoo said it used GoCardless Instant Bank Pay to deal with customers whose first payments failed, with two-thirds of them being able to resolve the matter with an open banking payment. All right, Andy, uh, you're on the hot spot or in the hot seat uh, for this one. Um, I'm, I'm going to just, you know, let you tell us a little bit more about this launch and what it means for you to start with. And then I'm, I'm sure the rest of my panel will have questions for you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I think I mean, the first thing to say is that this is this is the first of, of kind of many open banking powered features that we, we're intending to launch. So for those not familiar with the Go Cardless product, um, most of our core product is is built upon direct debit um, direct debit payment processing rails, and um, direct debit is 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 solves problems for customers and, and merchants uh, across a few dimensions, but is is kind of fundamentally flawed in others. And and by that I mean it doesn't have the ability to do things instantly. So. Um, it's probably better if I sort of highlight it by means of an example. So we we serve, I think uh, you already mentioned around sixty thousand merchants, and we've got a big um, a, a big uh, segment of, of fitness and gym companies who use who use our technology. And gym companies have a sort of a fundamental payments problem in that they they need to essentially do do two types of payment generally speaking so you you sign up for your gym using your credit or debit card invariably and then you'll pay or pay off your recurring installments or your recurring monthly monthly subscription normally using direct debit direct debit's very suitable for that recurring element but the the initial the initial payment the only option for for gym companies is to use credit or debit card today so what instant bank pay does and what we've launched is the ability to collect that first payment using a direct um, bank transfer, and that's all powered powered by open banking. Hopefully that that makes sense and that it's all clear. I'm sort of still trying to hone my pitch, ready to take it to, to <laughs> Netflix or somebody in the next few weeks. <laughs> no, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And I'm a big I'm a big open banking advocate or fan. Anybody who knows me and knows my writing knows that I do tend to go on about it a lot. Um, just sort of a quick follow up question for you, I suppose. You know. Um, this is this is just the, the first suggestion of how you might use open banking. You know, there's more in the pipeline, I suppose. Are there any others that spring instantly to mind or that you can give us a sneak peek on? Or, or is it, you know, something that you're just planning on, on, on rolling out slowly and utilizing across more different use cases? Um, I think both really. So yeah, we're, we're, we're looking, we're in the UK right now with instant bank pay. Um, it solves two different use cases. One is that instant first payment that I mentioned. And the second is the ability to collect just one-off payments. So a lot of our merchants have 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 that need as well. So um, take Cookie as, as as the example you mentioned. You know, if they wanna, if they've got failed payments that they wanna collect at a later date, um, the instant bank pay product is is really is really useful for that for that use case. Um, so UK only right now. We're looking to to roll out instant bank pay essentially across the world. You know, in in, in the coming months months and years. Um, and then we will be used. So that utilizes the PIS component of of open banking. Um, we're also going to be utilizing AIS at some point, so we'll be able to offer payment style products. So for payments use cases, but using AIS. So um, I'll give you an example there as well. So for example, Spotify, if, if they wanted to sign up a, a customer for, for a free trial, so they don't want to actually take payment upfront initially, but they do want to do an authorization that, you know, the, 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 the direct debit mandate they're setting up for the recurring payments is actually 
valid and it, it's the, the the person who's setting up the mandate actually owns those those bank account details we're going to be developing a product which which speaks to that that as well so you can do what we're calling like a verified mandate um and so that's something we're, we're currently in the process of developing too so it's as i say it's just the start um important important to point out is that we're you know we're we're seeing uh, as a as a direct debit provider because that's what our core product is is built upon but you know that's that's something that we're moving away from quite quickly and we're we're becoming agnostic of you know the the payment rails that we use you know we're looking to solve customer problems um and merchant problems um and you know we're 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 we're, we're trying to find the best way to do that so open banking you know provides the opportunity to fill quite a few of those gaps now but in the future it could be it could be even more yeah, I think that's hugely important when you're when you're a payments company right now is to be looking at all the different ways in which you can be making and accepting payments. Um, Kate, I'm going to come to you next. You raised your hand. I don't know if you've got a question for Andy or a comment, but I'm just going to let you go. Oh, a question. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm interested. So obviously you mentioned, Andy, you're primarily a B2B business, but obviously this is going to be an experience that you know, impacts an end customer. So, you know, I've just moved house. You know, I'm setting up direct debits left, right and centre at the moment. So I'm, I'm intrigued to understand you know, what that experience will look like for the end customer? Will they realise that it's an open banking process? Like, how transparent is that, and kind of what have you designed around that so far? Yeah, really good question. I, I mean, I think that generally speaking, we we don't think that customers need to know that it's open banking powered necessarily. Um, you know, we, we're trying to to solve uh, problems both for merchants and, and for end consumers, and we're trying to just build tech that works. And if it works, it works. You know. Today, uh, you know, customers who sign up using direct debit to one of our merchants aren't necessarily familiar with BACS, which is the thing that powers direct debit. So, you know, the the underlying technology is 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 there, but does it matter what it's called? Not not necessarily. Now, I think it's also impo- important to point out there that um, you know, when it comes to open banking, consumers, whether they they know um, that something's powered by open banking or not, they're still the ones having to sort of give consent and log into their internet bank and things like that. So there will be an element of sort of consciousness, at least in the first couple of times that they, they use it in the first couple of payments that they, they make, you know, they'll be conscious that they're giving consent. But after that, you know, I think we're hoping that it becomes something that people, be, you know, get get used to. So I think that point about customer consent is is, is so important. Um, and I think that's the bit that kind of gets missed or lost in translation is that we get het up about people knowing what open banking is. And that's kind of completely irrelevant. It's, it's do they know what they're agreeing to and do they know where their data is going to be used? And if they know that, then knowing the term open banking is, is hugely irrelevant to, to, to whatever it is they're trying to do. Um, Jasper, did you did you want to add to that or did you have a question? I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm this is unusual dynamic. I'm managing a panel of question masters. So... <laughs> I actually do want to add to that instead of asking questions. Uh, first, first of all, first of all, um, I think it's brilliant uh, addition to what uh, GoCardless is offering. Um, uh, with COVID, my gym membership being frozen, unfrozen, frozen, unfrozen, and getting these variable payments, I can definitely see how that could be sorted by these one-off payments. So I like, and there will be loads more. Um, but I think what you guys are trying to do here is very clever by not calling it open banking. So Andy, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's just offering instant payment or variable payments. Exactly. Um, and what you know, with uh, for looking at what we've got in got in the pipeline, where we are going to offer also like a one-off or an instant payment into your pension pot uh, using open banking. Uh, that's in the pipeline for the next couple of months, uh, aside from direct debits and bank transfers. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're not calling it open banking. Talk. 
Yeah, yeah. We, we're not talking. We're not going. Oh, okay. Are we flirting now? Uh, but um, this is like we're not calling it open banking because as soon as people don't know what it is, and I don't think actually people can be bothered to know what it is as long as it works and it does the job. So yeah, good move. Absolutely. Well, before you two spark a beautiful new relationship, <laughs> I'm going to um, go over to. I'm sure. I'm sure you can chat offline. I think there are definite synergies between what you guys do. But I'm just going to pause that conversation for now, and I'm going to take us over to Stuart, who I know wants a, wants a chance at asking a question. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, it's just intrigued because obviously I've I've been away from England for a long time, 15, 16 years, and um, so firstly, like a noob question with the um, the direct um, debit. Why wouldn't you? They, why wouldn't a gym just continue charging on a, on a credit card? Is it because of the charge off that they they take the they wouldn't want to take that risk? Yeah. So there's a there's a couple of sort of uh, structural reasons why direct debits are kind of better than cards for those recurring transactions. The, the first one is is around cost. Credit cards and debit cards are just far far more expensive. Um, the second one, you know, bank accounts don't expire. Uh, credit and debit cards do. So for recurring payments, you know, the the the, the churn. Uh, the, the the churn potential with, with with credit and debit cards is is much higher. So I think I mean they're they're probably the, the two main main um, main reasons. Yeah. So if you could, so 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 the I, you can tell I go deep into product pretty quick. The uh, so so you're swiping a you're <laughs> swiping tough. a credit card at a gym and then they ask you to fill out some kind of form with your direct debit details. So if you if you created some form of product that linked your bank account, your direct debit through open banking permissioning to your credit card uh, with some kind of authorization through your phone, that would be pretty cool, right? Like you go around swiping and say, yeah, now you can debit it from this. Yeah, but they're, they're, don't forget, they're two completely separate schemes that run on completely different rails, and there's there's ve- there's no identifier that sort of crosses between both. So the, in- the instant bank pay product is is solving for that, but keeping it within the bank account details kind of domain as opposed to trying to trying to cover both. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, I guess that the, the, one of the challenges is you know. Uh, we, we just spoke around kind of the, the, the customer and the experience there. And like our, our, our big focus is to try and build something which is better than credit cards, not structure, not just structurally, but also from the customer experience point of view too. Um, but yeah, it's that combination of, of the initial payment through instant bank pay and then the, the recurring through direct debit. And the, the way we've built it is that you, it, it, it happens in, in one, in one experience. So you filling in your mandate. You go off and do the, the authentication, come back, and you complete the mandate setup. So it doesn't feel like you're doing a payment and then a mandate. It's it's yeah. pretty it's pretty slick. Got it. That's so cool. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I am going to move us on to the next story now, and I don't have a, a guest um, up here to talk about this story. So you're going to have to you're going to have to take it in turns. Um, nobody to interview, guys. Um, so the next story is that Barclays US and Amount have launched a white label BNPL suite. So Barclays US is joining forces with fintech firm Amount to offer merchants a white label point of sale buy now pay later financing service. Uh, this is a hugely booming market. Um, Barclays is hoping to entice merchants with the prospect of letting them use their own brands to deepen connections with their customers. The service, set to go live with retailers later this year, will be powered by Amount's digital financial services platform, which includes fraud prevention, verification and account management. Barclays has actually previously invested in Amount. Um, the CEO of Barclays US Consumer Bank said we're excited to extend our presence in the BNPL marketplace alongside Amount, a developer that has the technology and knowledge to provide consumers and merchants with a mutually beneficial purchasing process. 
Um, Kate, I'm going to come to you first on this one, um, for, for lack of a Barclays or a Mount, yes, basically, <laughs> sorry. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, so I think the, the, the point perhaps here is the buy now, pay later market is just absolutely booming. Everybody and, you know, their dad and their dog is getting involved in this. Um, what do you think about the market as a whole? I mean, just generally, like in terms of, is it something we should be keeping an eye on? Is it a, a something that needs perhaps a little bit more careful watching and regulation? Or even perhaps, do you, you know, who do you think the winners and losers are going to be here? Yeah, and no, I think absolutely. I feel like every time I'm on the show, we've got a, one of our main stories is talking about something in the buy now, pay later space. So it's just constant. Um, I think I've said on the show before that I have quite substantial concerns about the sector and its current its current state. Um, I think, you know, Citizens Advice in the UK has published some new research this week, which is pretty concerning. You know, when you look at some of the individuals who are using these types of services without fully understanding some of the implications, obviously, you know, for lots of people, this is a hugely useful product that helps them to break up large payments over time. You know, we talked with Stuart earlier about, you know, the future of credit cards in the US. I think a lot of people agree that the future of credit cards is not really credit cards at all. It's a, a sort of a evolved version of buy now, pay later and credit cards come together. And I think we're in this really interesting hybrid moment where both products currently exist and probably currently exist in quite bad forms, um, dangerous forms for customers. Um, but I think there's obviously huge growth in it. And I suppose uh, the hope is that over time with the right amount of regulation and the right amount of scrutiny, buy now, pay later will become a genuinely useful product for consumers that mitigate some of these risks of, of debt and mismanagement that we're currently seeing. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting area because it's grown so quickly and it's one of those classic regulation hasn't quite caught up with what's happening in the market. I mean, uh, Jasper, I'll come to you next. You know, are you a BNPL user? Um, you know, do you do you use these services? And what, what kind of what's your perspective on this on this market as a whole? Because it's, it's something we've seen a lot more of in the US and actually in Australia and New Zealand, they have been huge fans of this method for a really long time. Um, you know, do you think, do you have any concerns about it? Just what are your thoughts, I suppose? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm, I'm using it um, and simply because it's easier to check out sometimes when you're actually using these services. That's my that's been my experience, not because I definitely wanted to use it in that way. Just it just felt like easier to check out. Um, Look, I, I actually think this particular kind of a product uh, is probably going to be much better than a credit card with God knows how much APR interest rates. The problem I've got is that it's not properly regulated in the UK. And if, if a product is not, pro like like you said, Sarah, the regulator is kind of like almost, well, wait, they, they still need to wake up and actually properly regulate this. That's my concern. And as a result, it's almost been introduced as a very like you know using the wrong reasons to use it by certain groups of people and therefore the outcome is detrimental outcome from certain consumers and kate your your, your what you mentioned of the citizens advice report i think that absolutely is an example of how you know what awful outcomes you you got so you know on one hand i'm like well it's, it's better than a credit card but on the other hand i'm like Give it a bit more regulations and a bit more needs to mature a lot more for it to be successful. Um, and then I think it has legs. Absolutely. I mean, Stuart, how about you? So the buy and down pay later market is 
bigger in the US, as you might expect, but regulation tends to be slightly lighter just generally across financial services products. I mean, so what's your perspective on this? Because I think it would be unlikely here in the UK and across Europe, we could well expect to see regulation of these products. The regulators move quite quickly, particularly when it comes to protecting consumers. And that's especially true here in the UK. What do you think might be the outcome in the US? Because I imagine that it's going to be slightly different, whatever, whatever happens next. Yeah, we're starting to see, well, Klarna's here. Um, we've have Afterpay uh, from Australia here, um, and then we have a whole like host of others, and another ten, almost a dozen. So, uh, as usual, America is sort of, you know, inundated with credit. <laughs> so, um, to Kate's point, and I echo it, you know, we're seeing a massive shift from a sort of fairly blunt instrument of a credit card to these various sort of uh, mechanisms. Most people, most young people are moving towards debit, for example, and then supplementing some of their purchasing behavior with buy now, pay later. The reason why it works is a couple of things. One is obviously lack of friction, and it's an amazing customer acquiring tool, right? Because you're, you're, you have the merchants fund your acquisition, right? Which is amazing. It's a very expensive game here in, in fintech. So, so obviously that's that's pretty exciting for for, for many people. It's interest free, typically split over over many over many months. I think the lack the the the, the regulatory part is is around, um, or at least from where I'm seeing, is around like how much are they really charging for those late payments? And I think there's gouging, potential gouging around that, right? So that needs to be looked at. Um, and then also, there's no fixed line. So you can have multiple, if there's 20 uh, uh, competitors doing this and you've got $1,000 each, you've got $20,000 potentially out, right? And, and so what what is that for people's financial health? Are they being responsible and all this other stuff? So we don't know that. So those are the two, the two main areas, I think, um, the other thing is, is the reason why there's so many here is that it's pretty easy to get this up and running, right? So you need a widget on a, you know, we've had this analog to digital conversion of which Current has done um, and taken advantage of, right? So no one could go to branches for a year. Um, and so in terms of shopping, you had to shop online primarily. And so all of a sudden then it was like, well, now we have this opportunity. All these eyeballs are on, are, you know, card not present um, purchases, um, all digital, all online. Now this this sort of thing crept up. I think it's pretty interesting. The debit, you've got the analog to digital. You've got the um, the debt, the credit to debit, and then this BNPL. I think it's really interesting. It's here to stay. The next twelve to twenty four months in America, will they're going to tough it out. These these titans who have grown up in other areas, they're going they're going to war here in in, in America. It's going to be really interesting to see. Who's going to win? As someone like Current, we're willing to partner with one of them, right? So we're talking to some of them. And so we would like to partner with them rather than potentially build it out ourselves. Yeah, I think that it's going to be, I like that metaphor of Titans going to war. I just had a thing of Greek mythology just boomed into my head. Um, Andy, I'm going to give you the final word on this. Just, I mean, just again, generally your thoughts about buy now, pay later. Don't worry, we won't take whatever you say as a confirmation or a, or a you know, <laughs> denial that, that GoCardless is going to launch a similar service. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know a lot about the payment space. So what's your perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I don't use it myself. I'm a sort of BNPN um, type type buyer, <laughs> if I'm honest. But um, you know, I've I've watched I've watched Klarna for for many years. I I, I hung around in the the tech scene in Stockholm, in, you know, for the last decade and watched them kind of grow up. And I, I mean, I think what Klarna have tried to do is is 
is that they, they've not tried to build buy now, pay later necessarily. They, they've been focusing on one thing as, as far as I can see, and that's sort of just removing the friction to pay, you know, which has benefit for both the, the, the you know, the, the merchant and, and the buyer. And that's been their core focus. And, and, and I've, and it, it hasn't, that hasn't changed. Buy now, pay later is just a product to try and solve for that. Um, I, I don't have much, much to say around the sort of the, the negative side other than I think that the winners will be the ones that so, so removing friction from payment is, is almost sort of get to the point where you're almost removing the decision making. You're removing the sort of conscious decision making of the buyer and the winners will be the ones that sort of like get that balance right. So, you know, if you look at what Klarna launched this last couple of weeks around the, the carbon offsetting thing, you know, they're bringing some kind of consciousness around purchasing and, 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 and commerce back into sort of their, their product, which I think is super interesting. So like getting the balance between sort of removing that friction, but putting a bit back and sort of making the you know get, making the buyer more conscious about the decisions they're making and the purchases they're making. I think you know for me that's it. Might, it might, may seem a bit of a, a dreamy thing to say, but like that that's the meta the meta thing that's that's gonna that's gonna happen here. Yeah, I think I think the key takeaway for me is when Jasper said I use it because it's easier, and my brain went, uh oh, that's not necessarily what I want to hear about potential credit product. Um, but uh, but yeah, we'll we'll leave that one there. I think I assume next time I'm doing the news, there'll be another buy now pay later story. I just I just expect there to be one now. Um, but for now, we're going to move on as we're getting to the end of the show to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but we do think they still deserve a shout out. So, Kate, do you want to start? Sure, yes. Our first story comes from Finextra. Dutch neo-broker Bucks raises $80 million. So after an initial rollout in the Netherlands, the Dutch firm launched its flagship commission-free trading app Bucks Zero in Germany, France, Austria and Belgium in the past year. And they've now raised $80 million in a funding round led by Tencent. The business targets a new generation of novice investors, and they currently claim to have 500,000 customers. And the full range of their their products includes Bucks Crypto, which allows users to invest in cryptocurrencies. And their CEO said, younger generations in Europe now realise investing is one of the few viable ways left to create a stable financial future. With this new funding round, Bucks will continue to spearhead innovation by implementing advanced features to further shape the future of how Europeans invest. So, yeah, I think we can sometimes be a bit guilty, uh, maybe me individually or us as a show, I don't know, of not paying enough attention to brands that are doing well in, in continental Europe. I think we can tend to focus on the UK and the US quite a lot. But Bucks have obviously established themselves as a major player in this space. You know, they claim to be the largest near broker in Europe. So this raise just reinforces that they're definitely a company to, to keep an eye on. And investment platforms in general have obviously been one of the main beneficiaries of, of the pandemic. You know, we've seen substantial growth for similar digitally led platforms across multiple markets, you know, riding the wave, not just of COVID-related economic instability, but also customers just having more time generally to think about their finances um, and their financial futures. So, you know, with traditional savings products still generating depressingly low revenues and returns, I think we're only going to see these platforms growing. Uh, and so congrats to the team. Yeah, I think it's a, a sort of pretty wise move for their investors. And I'm looking forward to seeing which markets they, they head to next. Yeah, absolutely. Huge market, huge after the last 18 months. All right, the next story today is teen banking service Step has raised $100 million in a Series C as kids-focused fintech Greenlight has raised $260 million in an A16Z-led Series D. Okay, Step, the digital banking service aimed at teens, closed the 100 million round um, after growing to more than 1.5 million users just six months after launch. 
It also announced some celebrity backers, including the Chainsmokers, Will Smith, Jared Leto, and NBA all-star Stephen Curry um, as investors, as well as fintech heavyweight Stripe. Uh, The CEO says it's signing up to 10K accounts per day and doesn't need the cash as it's yet to spend the Series B round. Uh, Meanwhile, Greenlight, the fintech company that pitches parents on kid-friendly bank accounts, has raised $260 million in a Series D funding round that nearly doubles its valuation to 2.3 billion dollars. That round was led by A16Z, which also took a board seat. Um, Since its launch in 2017, Greenlight has set up accounts for more than 3 million parents and children who have saved more than $120 million through the app. Um, That's up by over a million users and $70 million saved since September 2020. I mean, my goodness, it all happened on the same day as well, all these raises for for, for similar sort of products and services, or at least products and services that are targeting similar audiences. Um, I think it's really fascinating just how much um, you know capital they've acquired, how fast they're growing. Um, I think it's a really interesting market because we talked touched on it earlier. But there's this kind of like getting younger people in and then having the lifetime value of the customer. Um, obviously, you know, depending on how young you get them in, they don't actually have any money yet. So I think Greenlight's idea, where you've got the parents involved as well, probably. Um, is is you know one that gives it a, perhaps a more stable uh, model for 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 the short term. Um, the thing I actually really want to know, aside from all of this, is whether the chain smokers, Will Smith, Jared Leto, Stephen Curry, and Stripe have all been in a room at the same time, because that is a conversation I'd like to hear, particularly <laughs> if they're discussing the future of fintech. Um, but yes, huge market, growing market, kids accounts uh, definitely going to be one to keep an eye on and to use um, Stuart's language earlier, probably a battle of the titans coming there as well. I think, uh, Kate, back to you. Sure. Uh, and last up in this section, I'll still have a story from Finextra. So Turkey arrests dozens as crypto exchange boss flees the country. So Turkish police have arrested 62 people after the Thodex cryptocurrency exchange stopped letting users access their accounts or withdraw money. And its founder fled to Albania. The exchange posted a notice on Thursday on its website saying that it would be closed for between four and five days. The move prompted fears that the assets around 390,000 people, so hundreds of millions of dollars, may have been stolen. After some customers filed criminal complaints alleging they'd been scammed, Turkish police have stepped in. Uh, they've asked Interpol to issue a red notice for the CEO, uh, Farouk Fatih Oza, who I've probably mispronounced his name, but if he's a criminal, I don't really mind, um, who's fled to Albania. <laughs> uh, and the police have made additional arrests in raids across eight cities and are still seeking another 16 people, apparently. So in a statement, Oza has said that investors will be repaid and that the founder will return to Turkey. So, um, yeah, we focused on Thodex for this story, but it also looks like there have been issues of another uh, Turkish exchange, I think, if I've read correctly, Burbitcoin. So obviously, the, the first thing we naturally think of is, is the potential Netflix documentary. But there's a real kind of human element to this. You know, crypto exchanges in Turkey have seen a big boost recently with lots of customers looking to protect their, their savings against you know, high inflation and currency instability. So yeah, this is really concerning to think about for people's savings. Um, And the central bank in Turkey has pledged to tighten the regulations surrounding cryptocurrencies. Um, But obviously, a huge amount of coverage of crypto recently is focused rightly on the success stories. But it's inevitable that I think we're sadly still going to see stories like this as a sector and the regulation around it continues to evolve. So fingers crossed it, it turns out okay. um, And it works out well for customers and we get a great Netflix documentary off the back of it as well. I tell you what, the Netflix documentaries ideas that we've pitched on this show, we should be rolling in it by now. That's all I'm saying. The Wirecard one, I'm still I'm still waiting for that to happen. 
Um, all right, now on to our and finally story. So this week, it's that Standard Life Aberdeen has rebranded to ABRDN. Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to say, oh yes, I'm still supposed to say Aberdeen, but it's just got rid of all of its vowels. Um, apparently, this reflects a modern, agile, digitally enabled brand. Um, it will also come along with a new visual identity. And in a two-minute video posted on Twitter, the company attempts to tie the rebrand to a new technology-led business fit for the future. Um, I think we're still going to have vowels in the future. To the best of my knowledge, like we haven't replaced vowels with fintech. Um, I may that may just be me. anybody anybody got any? Thoughts? Can anybody make sense of this perhaps? I wondered I, I wondered when I first saw it if it was just an attempt to kind of phonetically spell Aberdeen in a Scottish accent, but you know, so quite a thick sort of semi Glaswegian Aberdeen accent, like, but oh, I'm not gonna ruin my reputation by attempting that live on on the recording, but that's certainly how I read it. Jasper, how about you? You probably have some more sensible thoughts than I do on this. Well, that's yet to be seen. Um, I, I, I think um, this is an attempt for, this is a very traditional uh, wealth management company. Um, and it's an attempt of them to rejuvenate, to get on with times. We, you know, they are, they are part of the suite of other wealth investment companies in the UK. And I'm not saying they're all old, but, you know, things like Aviva, Scottish Bidders, the big ones, remember? So Standard Life Abdeen is a big one. Um, do you, it's kind of like uh, rejuvenating your outside, but not doing anything that's happening on the inside. Um, don't want to say it's a rotten core because I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know. But it's kind of like freshing up the outside. Um, but does it really change the company? And the other thing is, um, as I've been, you know, at Pension B, we've built a brand from the start up. Um, it's very hard to, and you need to think very carefully about how you build your brand and how you position your brand. Um, I think here uh, a brand agency has come in and um, looked at like we all. Do you guys know Harvey, which is the uh, uh, the pop artist, which is also without is H R V etc. So um, I think they should look like well, that guy is young. Um, that's look nice and fresh. Why don't we just apply the same rule to our company? That's that's how I've looked at it. But hey, I've not been part of the process. There might be some really critical, deep thinking involved and months and months of consultancy uh, involved um, uh, in order to get there. And if I'm proven wrong, I'm very happy to eat my hat. I think the thing for me about this is um, I, c- I completely agree with you, Jasper. There's no point in you know painting the outside of the house if you don't you know put the balls back up on the inside. But do you want a brand that people don't know how to pronounce? If you're trying to think of a brand, you need to be able to yeah. say it, I think. It, in their press release, when they did the rebrand, they actually specifically specified you have to pronounce this as Aberdeen. And for me, that kind of defies the whole point. If you have to do that in your press release, then I think there's something wrong. Yeah. It reminds me <laughs> of the um, it reminds me of the joke. This is a, a slightly less serious take on it, but it reminds me of the joke. Uh, why does Edward Woodward have so many D's in his name? Because if he didn't, he'd be Iwa-Wuwa. <laughs> well, that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> Stuart, final words? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a painful rebrand, isn't it? Um, to be agile, they're trying to be modern, agile, and digitally enabled. Um, 
by removing vowels and shortening the 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 name they felt like somehow that would be a quicker way of saying or like a visual representation of that obviously and then all it's done is 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 instigated more questions about how to pronounce it which is the opposite of what they were trying to do right so now now there's a chat about like it's it, it's not agile anymore it's awkward it's awkward and we don't and it's confusing so now they have a brand that's awkward and confusing. It's literally the opposite of what they were meant to do. So, you know, I, I think um, when it comes to pension funds and life insurance stuff, and, you know, I, I don't know if there is a desire from, from consumers to see that change. I want something that's the same when I was 20, when I'm 70. That would give me, that would instill some confidence that I got some money at the end of that game. Uh, and so and so I don't know if they, you know, I don't know why they're they're doing this. I don't kind of get it. All right, Jasper, you had a comment that you wanted to add to that, and then I'll wrap up. I have up. a positive one as well. It's not all doom and gloom. It was all over the news this week in the UK. So brand awareness, up. Um, if it's the right brand awareness, that's yet to be seen. But everybody now has heard about this story. It was, I think, Daily Mail, BBC News, ITV. Um, it's been a while since we had a rebrand going to the broadcast. So that's the positive here. My mum had heard the story, so that's probably all you need to know. Um, and that wraps up this week's news. And um, thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Jasper? Well, of course, um, uh, have a have a look at Pension B. But my own is uh, my Twitter is Jasper Martins, and the same is for LinkedIn, Jasper Martins. Brilliant, Andy. How about you? Yeah, with for GoCardus, we're we're at, at GoCardus on on LinkedIn and Twitter, and then uh, I don't use Twitter that much, but yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as Andy Wigan. Brilliant, Stuart. Yep, um, uh, Current.com. Uh, download us in the App Store if you're in the US, um, and at Current on Twitter and LinkedIn, and myself at SopStew. Perfect, and Kate. Uh, yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, and at K8. Moody on Twitter because apparently there's lots of Kate Moody's in the world sadly so there we go well you're absolutely our favorite Kate um, and as for me you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kajanski thank you so much for listening if you like what you've heard do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review it does help to make it better and it helps others to find the show if you want to join the conversation you can find us on social media just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or you can email podcast 11FS.com Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite-sized goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.